welcome to the forum at Holy Communion. My name is Mike. I am one of the priests on staff. This is our weekly conversation about life, spirituality, faith, politics, uh, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus these days. I am really glad to have with us today uh, one of the canons for our diocese, that is to say one of the folks on our bishop's staff. Uh, I was really excited when Whitney Rice was appointed because she was appointed to be a canon for evangelism. Uh, and I'll let her give you her full title because it's a big one. But um, she was appointed to be a canon for evangelism, which is to say that um, it's part of our job as Christians to figure out how to tell the good news. And I am a believer that the Episcopal Church has particularly good news and news that is particularly needed in a city like St. Louis. And so I was really excited to have Whitney as a colleague in that work and as a coach in that work. And Whitney's going to be talking with us today about evangelism. So without further ado, Canon Whitney Rice. Thank you so much to Father Mike and to all of you at Holy Communion. It is such a blessing to be with you this morning. And yes, my name is Whitney Rice. I am the Canon for Evangelism and Discipleship Development here in the Diocese of Missouri. So yes, it's quite a mouthful. It barely fits on a business card. So we're going to talk about evangelism today, the E word, but first let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, who called your church to witness that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. Help us to proclaim the good news of your love, that all who hear it may be drawn to you through him who was lifted up on the cross and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So here's something you have never heard in your life. You have never heard anyone say, those Episcopalians, boy, they are great evangelists. Wow, I wish I had heard that, but I haven't, and I don't think you have either. So we're going to talk about why that is and how we might change it. So let's start with that collect I just prayed. That is not from the Book of Common Prayer. Why? Because there is no collect for evangelism in the Book of Common Prayer. We have some prayers for mission, which is not quite the same thing, but no collect for evangelism. No wonder we're struggling. So that collect is actually from the Church of England prayer book, and we are borrowing it. So the closest thing that we have to an evangelism collect is from something we call the Solemn Collects on Good Friday, and it goes like this. Merciful God, creator of all the peoples of the earth and lover of souls, have compassion on all who do not know you as you are revealed in your son, Jesus Christ. Let your gospel be preached with grace and power to those who have not heard it. Turn the hearts of those who resist it and bring home to your fold those who have gone astray, that there might be one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, Okay. I mean, it's an okay prayer, but it's not super welcoming. It's kind of got that attitude of, you know, we're right and you're wrong. Back to that venerable Anglican tradition of converting people at the point of a gun, the legacy of the Anglican communion as an arm of the British Empire. I don't want to be on board with, with that, and I'm guessing many of you don't either. So how are we going to rethink this? How are we going to be evangelists out of our values? That's what we're striving to explore today. So we've got a long way to go. If we don't even have a prayer in our own prayer book for evangelism, we've got some work to do. How are we going to update our definitions of evangelism so they feel authentic to us? So we're going to ask ourselves, how do we live as people who share the good news in word and deed? Remember that in our baptismal covenant, 
we, we promise to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in word and deed. And Episcopalians, by word and example. Episcopalians love to proclaim the good news by example, but they feel a little bit shakier when it comes to proclaiming it by word. So we're going to work on getting more comfortable with that. So we're promising to do it in our baptismal covenant, but we never pray to make it happen. Well, that's maybe why we're struggling. So I want you to ask yourself, who are you as an evangelist? How are you practicing evangelism as a core spiritual discipline? I hope by the end of our time together, you feel a little bit more confident about that. I am on a one-woman quest to make every single member of our diocese feel confident in calling themselves an evangelist. So I hope you'll join me in that. Okay, so let's talk about why evangelism has such a terrible name in the Episcopal Church. Well, it's because most of us associate evangelism with some really negative things. When I ask people to list the words that they associate with evangelism, I hear a lot of things like this, aggressive, intrusive, exploitative, coercive. People think of money-grubbing televangelists. People think of experiences of being confronted with Bible thumpers, as the term is known, demanding to know if you have been saved. Uh, a lot of mainline Christians view evangelism as something that's scary. It's scary to other people, and it's scary to us to think of doing it. It is self-interested, right? The motivation. It's based on fear, guilt, and shame. Wow, that sounds awful. I don't want to be involved with anything like that. But do you resonate with that? Do you resonate with evangelism as all of these things, intrusive, exploitative, self-interested? But Jesus told us to evangelize, right? So what's going wrong here? Well, I'm making the case that all of these things as evangelism, aggressive, intrusive, exploitative, coercive, are not actually evangelism. Those evangelism practices, the way that evangelism has been practiced in the Western church, I call that Christian malpractice. I call that spiritual violence. It's often driven by greed, or particularly in previous generations, Christian imperialism and colonialism. And we don't want to be a part of that, right? So here's the bottom line. We cannot communicate a God of love by means of spiritual violence and coercion. The, the ways in which evangelism has been done in the past are very much based on a paradigm of we are right and you are wrong. Too bad that your life is awful. Come in here to us in our church where we are right. Become like us. Assimilate to our culture, our norms, our theology. And if you do it well enough, we'll say that you're saved we'll say that you have God's approval. And I think most of us are going to say we're not on board with that, right? We cannot communicate a God of love by means of spiritual violence and coercion. A God of love can only be communicated by means of love, right? The message and the methodology must match. Love is both the process and the content of evangelism. Love is both the process and the content of evangelism. So what does that look like? Well, I invite you to think for yourself, what would be a definition of evangelism that resonates for me? What would be a way that Holy Communion could embrace evangelism that is authentic to your values and your identity, right? So um, we might think about a couple of different definitions. One that I've been working on is evangelism is not the didactic communication of the good news of Jesus Christ, right? What do we mean by didactic? We mean back to that idea of 
an educational evangelism, an evangelism that says we're right and you're wrong, an information conveying evangelism, where we take a big old chunk of theology and scripture and slam it over someone's head and say, you know, adhere to this or you're wrong. That's didactic. We're not going to approach it from that way. So, so switching over to a different definition, instead of that, we're going to consider evangelism as journeying together through discovering the good news of Jesus Christ. Journeying together through discovering the good news of Jesus Christ. So notice how different that is. Every one of those words is important, right? Journeying is important because it, it implies that it is a path. It is a way. It is, it is not a destination. It is something that we move through and that grows and evolves as we as individual spiritual followers of Jesus and as a community make our way through over time. We journey through evangelism, right? And then the next word, journeying together, right? It's not a, a lone ranger type of a thing where you have to go out there and save souls. No, 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 no. We are journeying together through discovering the good news of Jesus Christ. So we don't come into this. We don't come into our evangelism practice assuming we have all the answers. In fact, I'm going to make the case to you that evangelism is and should always be a two-way street, not a one-way street. So I know that I need the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed to me every day. I need someone to evangelize me. I need someone to wake me up to God's love in my life every single day. Right. So evangelism is a two way street. I am searching for good news in other people and I am asking other people in my relationships, in my community to show me good news because I don't know where it is. Sometimes I need help finding it. OK. So evangelism as journeying together through discovering the good news of Jesus Christ. That feels like something I can get behind. So is it something you can get behind or is there a way that you would modify that to make it more authentic to who God is calling you to be? So remember this. The original evangelism is not our communication to other people or even other people's communication to us. The original evangelism is God's communication to us, right? God gives us the good news. God evangelizes us. God comes to us and says what? Do not be afraid. That is the first word of every evangelist in the Bible. And so God reaches out to us in God's longing for spiritual intimacy with us over and over again, revealing God's self with incredible trust and vulnerability. And as we see the ways in which God reveals God's self in scripture with this trust, with this intimacy, with this vulnerability, with this humility, we can learn a lot about what our posture is to be as evangelists. And all of those qualities that we just talked about were important. Trust, intimacy, vulnerability, humility, right? It gets us away from that imperialistic nonsense that is our legacy, right? And then what's the ultimate act of evangelism? The ultimate self-revelation of God? It's the incarnation, right? Jesus coming to earth, God made flesh. It deepens that reciprocal self-revelation where God is revealing God's self to us. We are revealing ourselves to God. And it's this ever deepening, beautiful relationship of spiritual intimacy as we evangelize one another, as we proclaim good news to one another. And so evangelism is just welcoming more of that into our lives, welcoming more good news and helping other people find good news in their lives. So those are a couple of thoughts to keep in the back of your mind. Um, okay, let's talk about a big concept. And this one is always sticky, so it's a lot of fun. Here's another way in which our evangelism efforts have often gone off track. They have been corrupted by what we call institutional self-interest. 
Now, this is a very normal thing. Every church does it. I do it. What do we mean by institutional self-interest? We mean the idea that, have you ever been in a congregation that says, we need maybe this, maybe explicitly, maybe not that explicitly, but says something along the lines of, we need more people in the pews so we can get more money in the plate. If we don't get young families into this church, this church will close. That feel familiar at all? That's institutional self-interest. That's the idea of sharing the gospel for a self-interested goal that we're afraid our church is going to close. Again, it's very natural, right? As our churches grow smaller, our fear and anxiety grows bigger. But consider for a moment, did Jesus ever command us to have a higher average Sunday attendance? No. Did Jesus ever ask us to report more income on the political report? No. Most, if not all, of Jesus's images of the gathered spiritual community are about smallness and humility, right? The tiny treasure hidden in the great big field, the pinch of leaven in the ball of dough, and the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. Evangelism with authenticity and integrity can never be self-interested or institutionally motivated. We cannot approach this from the point of view of church growth, okay? Now, church growth is a beautiful, hopefully, side effect of our evangelism, but we cannot enter it with that as our motivation because it is a fear-based motivation. It's very natural to fear our church closing, but if that is what is driving our ministry, we're barking up the wrong tree, I feel, okay? Now, we're never going to totally get rid of institutional self-interest. I have a lot of institutional self-interest. The institution pays my paycheck, helps me keep a roof over my head. I'm never going to escape that totally. But I can constantly ask myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I, what is my motivation in having this spiritual encounter, this evangelism encounter with this other person? Is it fear? Is it self-interest? Or am I asking myself to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit to notice, proclaim, uplift, support, listen for good news? It's quite a different feel, I think you'll find. Okay. So the point I'm making is that 75% or more of your evangelism conversations may never involve an invitation to worship or another church event. That could come six months into your relationship with a person or five years in or never. But when the moment comes to invite someone to something, and hopefully it will come, it's going to happen naturally. It will make sense in the context of a deep spiritual relationship you've been building. Your job as an evangelist is not to get more people attending Holy Communion and Episcopal Church. Your job as an evangelist is to build spiritual intimacy with other people, to go with them to the deep places of life and search for God's love together there. Your job is to witness the glory of God and the people around you and proclaim their holiness and blessedness and to live as though you were truly holy and blessed because you are. So whether our churches are growing or shrinking, whether their doors are opening or closing, the good news of God's love remains the bedrock truth that transforms lives. And that is what we need around here, y'all. We need some transformation. People are hungrier than ever for good news. So forget about growing the church. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. And ask yourself the question, how do I see good news about God's love in my workplace, in my social circle, my friends, my family, my congregation? And what stories can I tell and listen for of grace and hope and redemption? Okay. So I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, you all, may, many of you may know the origin of the word evangelism. The word evangelism, there's a word inside that word. And the word inside the word is angel, right? The angels in the Bible are God's messengers. And like we talked about before, what are the first words out of the mouth of every angel in the Bible? Do not be afraid. 
So the first characteristic of all evangelistic activity is that it should always reduce fear. What are we doing or what could we do in our communities and our spiritual connections with one another that reduce fear? Because here's the thing, y'all, we've got a lot of fears. Our life is permeated by fear. People are afraid of death. They're afraid of God. They're afraid of community. They're afraid of one another, right? They're afraid of the future. They're afraid of being alone. They're afraid of too many people to be around, right? We're pretty much scared of everything, okay? <laughs> so what would it be like for Holy Communion to take on as, say, an Advent discipline or a Lenten discipline? We are all going to throw our weight into reducing fear everywhere we go with everything we do. What would Holy Communion and your surrounding community and your ministries be like if you consciously, intentionally took on the life of an evangelist as someone who reduces fear? in yourself and with others. What would that be like? I think it could be super exciting. So our job as evangelists, we got if we're going to grapple with fear, we got to think about our own fears. What are our own deep fears that we're grappling with in our minds and our souls? And we got to practice sharing about that. Practice sharing about that with one another. Um, how many times have you been at coffee hour and we don't talk about anything deeper than the Cardinals? Y'all, we got to go deeper. It's tough. It's tough in an Episcopal culture where we value niceness, we value looking like we have it together, we value a smooth, coherent social interaction. That's all good and fine. But here's the thing. If we are not talking about what Jesus is doing in our lives with each other, we are not a church. We are a club. Okay? I'm going to say it again. If we are not talking with one another about what Jesus is doing in our lives, we are not a church. We are a club. And again, it takes practice. So, so, so we practice sharing about our fears, about the deep places in our lives, about our grief, about our joy with one another. And we welcome others to share their stories about their own fears, their own griefs, their own joys. And we work together to go ever deeper into God so that God can chip away at our fear bit by bit. Right. And that's it. That's evangelism, building spiritual intimacy with one another. And again, we need to be evangelized as much as we need to evangelize others. We need the good news proclaimed to us. We need new, interesting, different spiritual perspectives set out for us. Right. Um, and then. So let me check in with Father Mike for a second. Father Mike, do you sense a jumping in point here or there's, there's plenty I more? Know, honestly, I was getting myself ready to, and I didn't know I was going to make my camera appear. So I'm very sorry for interrupting you. So if you want to go for a little bit, go for a little bit. And I do have a question or two, but okay. I can hold my question. So Okay, brilliant. Okay, well, let me let me get through this last bit and then we can have some conversation, which would be great. So, um, okay, so, so we're trying to build spiritual intimacy inside the congregation right? And outside the congregation. So we're going to, what does spiritual intimacy require? I'm sure you can articulate some things we already talked about. Vulnerability, trust, openness, risk-taking, right? This is scary stuff, right? We got to talk about the deep places of life and patience. Evangelism is not instant gratification. When you are, as an evangelist, you have to take on um, the, the Buddhist slogan, abandon all outcomes, and that's so hard for us because we are such a results-oriented society. We want a I always get it backwards, a quantitative measurement. And often the quantitative measurement we want is more people in the pews and more money in the plates. Evangelism is far more an art than a science. Okay. And so um, this is where evangelism ties into the rest of our spiritual disciplines. In order to have these spiritually intimate relationships and conversations, we got to have a spiritual life to talk about, right? So our 
Are we, are we reading scripture? Are we praying? Are we coming to worship? Are we engaging in transformative service activity? Are we activists for God's justice in the world? Um, are we in fellowship with one another? Are we doing peace work? It all ties in together. Okay. And remember, and, and I know that Holy Communion has a lot of charisms around justice work. And I encourage you to include evangelism in that. And I know that you already are. Um, it's not enough to just be about the work of justice. It is also important that we find ways to articulate and name the reason we are committed to justice is because we believe Jesus calls us to take part in that. Okay. Uh, let me see what else I want to hit before we do some more conversation. Um, okay. So I just want to give you one other little tool. Um, when you think about what are the types of conversations you can have as an evangelist, one easy way to think about it is we can have a depth conversation and we can have an invitation conversation. And they're exactly what they sound like. 75% of your evangelism conversations are a depth conversation, getting below the level of small talk. Now, how do you go about that? Well, we all know the initial question in every small talk encounter, how are you? And we all know the correct answers fine or busy. Those are the two correct answers. That is not an invitation to death. That is not an opportunity to look for good news or to welcome God's presence into a, a difficult place too. Okay. So a question I suggest that people use is what's been on your mind lately? That is a great question to ask. What's been on your mind lately for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an invitation to depth, but the other person gets to decide how deep they go. If I ask somebody what's been on your mind lately, they might say to me, the Cardinals. Okay, I have just received the message. They don't want to go deeper. That is fine. I'm not here to force anybody to do anything. But they might say to me when I say what's been on your mind lately, they might say to me, well, my mom was just diagnosed with cancer. That is an invitation to depth. And I can choose to enter that depth with that person. And I can say to that person, you know, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I was really angry at God. Whoa. Now we're there. Now we're into some territory with depth. So that's a handy part for that question. Here's another handy thing about that question. Now that I have said that to you, now that you have heard me say what's been on your mind lately is a great evangelism question, you can ask that question of each other at coffee hour or when you see each other at the grocery store or on a Zoom meeting or whatever it is. And when somebody says that to you, when someone else at Holy Communion says, what's been on your mind lately, you're going to be like, oh, you're doing the thing. You're doing the thing. You're doing the evangelism. And you are going to want to join them in that space. You are going to be excited and you are going to want to support them in their efforts to be an evangelist. And so you're going to go with them to that place of depth. It'll be beautiful. Okay. So um, let's see. So that's, that's a depth conversation, right? We can talk about life events and relationships, struggles and blessings. We can talk about how we can see God and how we struggle to see God in those events in our life, okay? And our spiritual conflicts, questions, learnings over time. Another thing that the Western church has often gotten very wrong about evangelism is this false assumption that people don't have a spiritual life before we show up. It's ridiculous, right? Everybody has rich spiritual lives that, that happened long before we came on the scene. And so asking them questions about that, what matters to them the most? What has gotten them through the hard times? What gets them up in the morning, right? Those are the kind of questions that we can use to get into a place of depth and search together for good news, right? So those are the depth conversations. That's the bulk of your evangelism, building spiritual relationship with others over time. The invitation conversations, exactly what it sounds like. 
So if I had been having a spiritually, a growingly, a growing spiritually intimate relationship with someone, we had that conversation about our parents having cancer, about searching for God in the midst of that. And then six months later, you know, meanwhile, we've had coffee a couple times, whatever it is. And then six months later, the topic comes up again. And so and so's parent has just died of cancer. And there is a grief group happening at Holy Communion. It now makes sense for me to make the invitation. It's not this ham-fisted, awkward, self-serving, come to our church on Sunday. It's like, no, you know this person's spiritual journey now, and you now know the ministry at Holy Communion that would serve them. And it makes sense. It's organic. Okay? All right. Cool. Okay, I want to say one more little soapboxy piece, and then I'll invite Father Mike to, to ask whatever questions have come to mind for him. So here's the thing. Clearly, I love evangelism. It's my number one soapbox. And, but I so, so, so understand why people don't feel comfortable with it, why they've had these hesitations. Again, I think it's about that bad rap evangelism has gotten because of the way it's been practiced. The Christian malpractice model, the spiritual violence model of evangelism, the, the colonialistic and imperialistic legacy of evangelism that we have to disentangle ourselves for. But here's the thing. The stakes are incredibly high. It matters. It matters that we find new ways of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. There are people walking around in your life right now today who do not know that God loves them. And I cannot get down with that, right? Think about that for a moment. Some of them attend your church every Sunday. You may be one of them yourself, right? A lot of us have the idea in our heads. We cognitively understand that God loves us. Some days we feel it in our hearts. And a lot of days we don't really feel it in our bones, we are looking for God to transform us into such people who understand and know to our bones and our DNA that we are beloved of God and that everyone around us is beloved of God. And so think about that hunger you feel for fulfillment and meaning and love and know that every single person in your life has that hunger too. And you have a way to speak into that hunger. You have a way to be present with them and to, to together open the doors to walk through so that we truly know we are beloved of God. It matters. It's big time. So if we insist that we don't do evangelism, we as individuals or we as a congregation, or we're just going to evangelize by example, we're like people standing on a ship holding a life vest and refusing to throw it to drowning people in the water because we're afraid of being intrusive or uncomfortable. If we say that we don't do evangelism, we're like people sitting at a banquet table piled high with food, and not inviting starving people to sit down because we're afraid we might use the wrong fork, right? Our feelings of discomfort, uncertainty are totally unimportant with the urgency of communicating and receiving the truth of God's love. So I hope that helps you kind of rethink evangelism a little bit. And just remember, if you remember nothing else I've said today, remember that fear not is the first and primary message of all the evangelists. So all evangelism is at the end of the day is looking for ways to say and to hear, do not be afraid every day of our lives. Okay. So Father Mike, what comes to mind for you? Now I'm back on purpose. I'm sorry for that interruption. It's, okay. I, I think I have the technology figured out sometimes and then I don't. Um, first, I want to say thank you. I think it's, it's so refreshing to hear evangelism talked about that way and Frankly, I mean, I know that there are people on all sorts of places with reclaiming that word or wishing there was a different word and particularly the derivative evangelical like that. We 
talk a lot about it. Um, I want to echo what you said, though, about like, if we say we don't do evangelism, um, you had a couple of points of that. I would say like, if you say you don't do evangelism around Holy Communion, you're just wrong. Um, I mean, Holy Communion, out of all of the parishes I have ever been a part of, is maybe our the most evangelical um, in the sense of, I have watched so many people do the invitation, sometimes to worship, more often to our laundry love ministry or serving at Trinity or to march with us. I mean, what we found is people are often far more likely to march with us in the pride parade or a protest or serve with us laundry or lunch or in our garden and talk with us at Theology on Tap. They're far more likely to show up there first long before they show up, if they show up for worship. Mm -hmm. um, but I watch our folks talk with their friends about what the gospel looks like as it's preached at Holy Communion, what, what the gospel looks like as it's lived out in this crazy community pretty often. Um, and I, I think for a lot of them, uh, the harder thing would be calling that evangelism than actually right. doing yeah. it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I promise I'm getting around to a question. I've got a couple. Um, the first is, it sounds like you're talking the language in terms of conversation that I've heard a lot of community organizers talk. Uh, Ed Chambers of the Industrial Areas Foundation used to say that the one-to-one -one meeting was the most radical thing they teach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, I hear you talk about the general frame, but I've got a question that people ask me sometimes that I, I'm going to put to you, right? Because you're on the bishop staff. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kicking it up a notch. But what does this kind of conversation mean um, with that friend or that family member who I'm a little bit concerned about? Like, where might I notice that I have already been having this conversation or how might I go about deepening a conversation and what anxieties can I let go of? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's important. That's a, that's a great point. Um, one thing that's really helpful is to remember, well, first of all, evangelism always starts with listening, mm -hmm. right? Again, the Western models of evangelism have been very much about, we're gonna throw, push this content down your throat and you have to get it right and other people have to agree with you or you're not an evangelist. And we're posturing ourselves as beginning with listening. And so if you're going to begin with listening, what kind of questions do you ask? Well, open-ended questions are a great place to start, right? So what's an open-ended question? A question that cannot be answered by a yes or no. So, so a closed question would be something like, um, did you go to the, the movie last night? Yes or no. An open-ended question would be, what did you like about the movie? Or what did you dislike about the movie? So that's a question that's going to open up some additional opportunity for depth. So focusing on open-ended questions is a great place to start. And, and I, I want to go back and say again what I said before in terms of abandon all outcomes, right? It's much more about the process than the result. So if you are challenging yourself to ask one deeper question per conversation that you have a week, that is great evangelism. It's not even proclaiming anything. It's just asking a question and listening. And I think that can be a way of starting to open those doors toward depth. And take baby steps. Practice on each other. Right. That's what we mean by evangelism inside the, con the congregation. And that's going to make it feel a little bit more comfortable in those relationships outside of church. Does that help? It does. It does. I think it's still I mean, the term is loaded. I jokingly through the pandemic, I've called myself an evangelical for Dutch babies. 
I don't know if you've seen any of my posts, but we got making these pancakes from a New York Times recipe and uh -huh. uh, they've gone up on Instagram. And I, it's amazing to me. It was almost embarrassing because there were a couple times during the pandemic when somebody has written to me and said, Mike, I made a Dutch baby after seeing your posts. And you're right, they're amazing. And I just kept going, if only my preaching of the gospel was as effective as my evangelizing for these pancakes. But I wonder about that. I wonder whether there's a hesitancy to do much public for church from Episcopalians because we don't want to be identified with those churches, with those parts of the Christian movement that have been violent. Um, it was interesting to hear you uh, rehearse a little bit of the history of our particular denomination. I mean, it's, it's the shameful parts um, and these days, I think a lot of people tend to think, well, I don't go to that kind of church. I don't go to the kind of church that, um, wants to proselytize and wants you to force to be one of their members or wants you to believe that your family members are going to hell. But I, I wonder about if that makes us hesitant. And I know you say 75% is the conversation that's just a depth conversation, but I wonder if we don't invite, if we don't repost something, if we don't, because we don't want people to see us being too publicly Christian. I think that's very real. I think that's very real. And when I, when I have to ask myself that question, why am I afraid? What I, and again, this is just for me, I will then ask myself, why am I that concerned with what everybody thinks of me? Hmm. Why is the gospel not of such urgency that I'm okay with being labeled wrongly. If I have been attending to my relationships, attending to them and trying to live out of a place of authenticity, of depth, of admitting my mistakes, of saying I don't have all the answers, then hopefully most people who have a passing or hopefully a deeper acquaintance of me will know, you know, that you'll know they're Christians by, by our love, right? And so it's, it's okay. Um, are we brave enough to be mislabeled sometimes? That might be a question that's worth asking ourselves. It's a risk. It is a risk. And I totally get it. I don't want to be labeled a crazy Christian either. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, my, my social outlet is swing dancing. And I'm always interested to observe myself. How do I out myself as a priest in that community? And how quickly? <laughs> right? So I get it. I get it. But um, I think taking a step back and examining that fear and asking how that fear can be transformed within us, I think is an important part of the evangelism journey. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really look forward to hearing um, from our congregation that's going to watch this, uh, their own stories, partly because of what I've said. Uh, I've not experienced, and there are going to be people that it's going to make their skin call to hear this. I mean, I preached a sermon one time where I talked about the value of conservatism and how Christianity, and in a congregation like Holy Communion, I watched people like uncomfortable in their pews. Yeah. And I think people are going to be doing the same around the word evangelism and to hear their rector say, I think it's one of the most evangelistic congregations in the Episcopal church that I've ever encountered. Yeah. Um, but I would, I'm really looking forward to hearing folks questions at the forum of the coffee hour time, uh, virtual coffee hour, 1130. Uh, you'll find a link at our website, holycommunion.net backslash info. That's where all of our announcements are. There's always a link to virtual coffee hour there and you can join at 1130 and we'll have a conversation with Whitney uh, we'll first have a conversation in small groups with one another, and I bet you can guess what one of the questions is going to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but then afterward, we'll have a conversation with Whitney, and we'll get a chance to ask some of our questions about 
uh, how to be evangelists and, and can we get ourselves there? Um, so Whitney, again, thank you. We're really looking forward to hearing more from you this weekend. And uh, I'm gonna end the recording, but hang on with me for just a second. We'll, we'll catch up with a little bit of clarifying stuff. And friends, we look forward to talking with you on Sunday. Thanks everybody.